Hi, welcome to episode 11 of the Therapy Explained podcast. In this week's episode, I chat with Donna Breen of Donna Breen Counselling, a counselling and CBT service in Tipperary. Donna has over 10 years working as a counsellor, having started when she was in her early 20s. She explains what counselling in its essence is, the core components of counselling, and how and who it can help. Hope you enjoy it. Welcome back to the Therapy Explained podcast. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Donna Breen, who is a CBT counsellor based out of Tipperary. She's the owner-operator of Donna Breen Counselling, which has a clinic in the Glen of Arlo, but they also offer online therapy. Hi Donna, thanks for joining me today. Hi James, and thanks a million for, for having me come on board. Um, I'm looking forward to our chat and to see what comes out of it. Me too. So you're, you're going to be the expert on counselling today, Donna, and hopefully you're going to be able to explore and understand what counselling is a little bit better. Maybe if we get started by just giving us a kind of a, a working definition of counselling, you know, what, what counselling is uh, generally. Yeah, so I suppose really with... Um... Yeah, and I suppose I was just saying this to you a little earlier, like I went away to think about it, you know, I suppose we hear counselling and psychotherapy, we hear them interchangeably all the time. Um, and I actually went away to, to look this up last night because I answer it so flippantly um, and I, I suppose I answer it all the time from my own perspective. And it's actually kind of difficult. I found it difficult to find a definition, a working definition that differentiates it from psychotherapy. Um, I suppose what, what, what came up or what came out of it really was um i suppose the core components in terms of counseling like counseling really it was looking more kind of at the skills side of it so in terms of carl rogers like he would have been um one of the theorists that would have um i suppose really looked more so at counseling than psychotherapy and he would have felt that it was the core component so unconditional positive regard um empathy reflective listening those skills, I suppose, would kind of make counselling, they would kind of be the main components for counselling as opposed to psychotherapy tends to be more the theory and the academic research and, and that the application of that. So again, even in me trying to explain this, it's very, very hard to, to define it and find the difference definitively between the two. So it's uh, it's hard to be have a strict definition of it, but some of the most important aspects of it, how you might be able to differentiate it is those three components, the unconditional positive regard, empathy and reflective listening. Is that kind of like summarizing? And yeah. if we were to think about where it came from, you mentioned Carol Rogers. Would he be considered a kind of founding father of counseling or is it not as simple as that? Was there a kind of a number of different theorists that would have contributed to the field? I suppose before he came on board, um, like if you look at psychotherapy theory in general and you bring it back, like you'd be bringing it, the, like in terms of psychotherapy, you're bringing it the whole way back to Freud. You know, mm. you're bringing it back that far. And I suppose they laid the foundations, um, you know, for a lot of stuff that was understood when Karen Rogers came on board. Um, and I suppose really as well at that point, um, Karen Rogers, this was again what i found from from looking it up and looking into it is they were all medically trained so they were trained medically and carl rogers was different insofar as he didn't actually have that um he didn't have that kind of medical training so i suppose that was what differentiated it you know from what i could find that was the differentiation was that he didn't have that medical background and um, so he came in with the with the counseling side and he felt that 
the I suppose a lot of the components were being lost within the psychotherapy traditions or the psychology traditions um, insofar as that it was just focused, we'll say, on the unconscious or, you know, that's the stuff that was kind of getting lost, I suppose, for him. So he felt it was just about more maybe meeting the person where they were at. So I guess that would be part of the counselling. It wouldn't be as aligned to the medical model and more about the therapeutic relationship. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's kind of where the research is at at the moment as well and has been for a number of years. Like, I suppose, historically, outside of counselling, you know, for some people, they would look maybe, um, we would say clients, you know, so people that we work with, we would call them clients, whereas maybe for someone from a more medical background would call them patients, you know, and to most people, it, it might seem like a seemingly insignificant differentiation. But I suppose from Carol Rogers' perspective or from a counselling perspective that there's kind of, um, there's no hierarchy within the room. It must have been quite a change at the time because it would have gone from the patient and the expert to more of a, uh, a level playing field where uh, the relationship is equal, whereas the therapist isn't necessarily the expert. Absolutely. And I think even still to this day, it's probably difficult for people to maybe grasp that so much. Um, you know, when, when we think of going to talk to somebody or going to work with somebody, we, we kind of, our assumptions can tend to be that we're going to go in and sit down and this person's going to tell us what to do and how to do it and it's going to fix everything. Whereas I suppose with counselling, it's that little bit different. I suppose the therapist sits down with the client and together they try to work out what's going on for the client and they believe that the client actually has the answers within themselves, it's just about kind of guiding them to get to that place. I wonder, can that ever be a difficult discussion to have, you know, trying to explain that the relationship is equal and you're not necessarily going to tell them what to do or how to fix them? Because I wonder if some people might come in with that being their take on what to expect from counselling. Absolutely. And I suppose what we, like, I suppose in its essence, what we do here is we will give people skills and tools and techniques, but fundamentally we believe that the person, you know, has the answers pretty much within themselves. Um, and having that conversation, it can be difficult, I suppose, for people to wrap their heads around it. But you would be amazed when you just sit down and listen to somebody, you know, for for a huge amount of our clients, just even having somebody for the first time in their life ever to just listen to them with no agendas you know with no with, with nothing else um but just to listen to the person and to listen to their story can be hugely cathartic for them and i i wonder if some people listen thinking because i know it's more than just talking and listening but some people might be thinking well i'm not really sure how that would make a difference you know just kind of talking about something but i know from my own experience being able to kind of open up about things uh, it can be so foreign from maybe what you're used to you can be surprised to, at the difference that it makes. Absolutely, because we're so used to kind of sitting back, like even if we look at social media, if we look at the internet, everybody is bombarding us, everybody's telling us what to do and how to do it and how it's going to make our lives better and fix us and all this stuff. And I suppose even from a marketing point of view, like, you know, if you're marketing a counseling business or you're marketing a psychotherapy business, you want to let people know how you can help them. But fundamentally, when they come through the door, if they can't sit down and just be themselves and express what's going on for themselves, it's going to be very difficult for them to make those adjustments. I guess that makes me come back to the, those core components that you mentioned, because I presume that they are um, crucial to create that kind of atmosphere. 
So if you could maybe just discuss those a little bit more, uh, uh, Donna. So the unconditional positive regard, empathy and re reflective listening. Is that right? Is that the three? Yeah, I suppose they're the three that kind of jump out at me all the time. Um, in terms of the the unconditional positive regard. So it's irrespective of what someone presents to you or says to you. Like, obviously, we're all human. You know, there's no point saying that we're not human, you know, and, and something you know, that somebody says, but, um, you know, you might, I suppose, I suppose it, it might shock you or whatever. Like at this stage of my career, there's very little that shocks me. There's nothing really that comes through the door at this point after doing it for 10 years that shocks me. But um, I suppose where I'm coming from that is, is that that person feels that it's a safe space for them, irrespective of what they've done or what's happened to them that they can just express that and that that's going to be a space for them um to be able to say that out and that that's going to be respected um because again you know we all grow up with our own conditioning we all grow up with our own family values society values all that stuff and for some people this could be the first time ever for them that they get to be their genuine true self and and state that state who they are what they are what's going on for them um and being able to do that and be met with unconditional positive regard so basically that as a therapist you're sitting there and you're supporting supporting them irrespective of what it is that they're saying that can be hugely hugely healing for people it reminds me of a component of a type of therapy called internal family systems. I spoke with Mary Tierney, who's an internal family systems therapist or IFS therapist from Galway. And one of the one of the curative aspects of that is if you can embody your uh, self with a capital S is what it's called. And for that, there's eight C's of self. I can't remember them all off the top of the head, but it's like curious, compassionate, confident, clear. I could be making these up now, but um, there's, uh, there's these eight core... Uh, Parts. And it reminds me so much of that unconditional positive regard. So if you're talking to someone and you can embody your true self, it, it has a curative nature and you're, you're trying to enable them to be their true self. And that can help with their other parts that that may kind of take over in certain situations, maybe when they're triggered. Yeah. That sounds, yeah, it sounds very, very similar, to be honest. Like, and I suppose even if we look at the concepts, you know, basic concepts like sadness or anger, that those emotions get displaced when we can't be our true selves. You know, mm. so we might project the anger onto other people because we can't own it in ourselves. You know, what we, I suppose what I've seen in Ireland is sometimes, and this can be a very broad generalization, so take it with a pinch of salt. But, you know, I suppose sometimes in Ireland, what we've seen is young girls, they're not really allowed to be angry that much. Mm. You know, it's kind of like it's unladylike or it's not very nice. And then when, and I know this happened to me, like I learned it all through my own training and my own personal therapy. Like if I get cross, then I'll just start crying. And then people are like, oh, look, the hysterical woman is off again. You know, but it's 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 more that I'm not owning my anger because for me, it was very difficult as a child. It wasn't okay for girls to get angry, if that makes sense. Mm. So that's where I'm coming from. So for me to be allowed with a therapist in the room, to feel all of those emotions and all of those parts of me that I'm going to be accepted, irrespective of what I say or what I think or what I do. That allows me the freedom then to express that, to feel that and to then move on. Yeah, it's so important for something that's such a, a core emotion. You know, if you think of the film uh, Inside Out, the Pixar movie, the five core emotions, anger being one of them, that I guess you have to be able to embrace it to some degree and to kind of harness it. 
because uh, it doesn't yeah. go away it comes out one way or another that's one way of looking at it yeah. at least and just thinking about the unconditional positive regard and having that that type of interaction with someone does that mean that you always have to like the person you're working with your clients mm. <laughs> yeah good question good question no, i suppose look and I think that that's what comes with experience as well. Um, and I think it's, um, yeah, like, do you have to always like your clients? I, I suppose for me, I think a lot of time your clients and how they present will be a representation or a manifestation as to what's going on for themselves. So if their behaviors are a little bit, you know, kind of off-centered or they're triggering something in you, like a very strong response or, you know, something that you really don't like this person, I suppose as a counselor, as, you know, as a person trained um, in that area, I would always try and look behind it, try and look at the why, what's going on here? Is this just like a mirror of what's going on in this person's life? And is that maybe why they're here? You know, um, that's kind of how I take it because what I've seen over the years is just working with a number of different clients. You know, for them, when they come in, they can find it um, really, really difficult, but they're actually finding it really difficult in relationships in their lives in general. You know, they might be having a lot of difficulties. They might be falling out with a lot of people. They might be having communication issues. And what we see then is in the room, it's just a manifestation of that. So as is indirectly, I get your question. Mm. Absolutely get your question. But I suppose I always try and get the therapists that, that work here with us. I would always say to try and look behind that, you know, and mm. see what's going on for this person that you know maybe how they're presenting or if they ring on the phone and they're quite cross or angry or those types of emotions sometimes it's that they're kind of bouncing off you their unresolved issues are kind of being I suppose projected onto you if that makes sense yeah no that makes a lot of sense I think as you gain more experience and maybe I found in particular what's been helpful is understanding the role of trauma that it really helps you kind of become a lot more empathetic and I guess what you mentioned there is the role of curiosity which again is a theme that comes up across different psychotherapies it's a great way of kind of slicing through those those issues that are kind of manifesting and thinking okay well if you continue to be curious and um, maybe you'll be able to come to a, a, a wiser conclusion about what could be going on here as opposed to that first part of you that kind of is like hey what do you mean by that um do you know it's kind yes. of just sit back and uh, see what yeah. um what else could be going on there Absolutely. And like I suppose I would have spent um, I would have spent some time doing a lot of kind of telephone counselling and assessments. Um, and I suppose that's what I would, you know, I would have got quite a lot of that, you know, on the telephones, it's easier for people to be a little bit more aggressive with you um, because they can't see you or whatever. But like what I always found is just taking that kind of just taking that deep breath and just kind of sitting back. And usually by the end of the conversation, the person has kind of regulated themselves so in terms of as you said like looking at the trauma-informed approach to things they've kind of regulated themselves they've got listened to they've been heard they've been understood and it actually diffuses the situation so it's kind of coming back to that unconditional positive regard like mm. obviously we need to have boundaries as humans you know as people that like you know things that are acceptable and not acceptable but sometimes people just need to be listened to and heard and a lot of times that stuff then just falls away mm, yeah maybe just give a bit of space and a bit of time and that can 
be all you need. So we kind of touched upon unconditional positive regard. Is there much of a difference between empathy and unconditional positive regard? Would you be able to dif- differentiate them? Um, yeah, try to differentiate them. This could be a challenge, but um, I suppose empathy is, it's really the ability to put yourself into somebody else's shoes. That's how like we would have always been been taught or defined that when we were training. Um, it's the ability to put yourself into somebody else's shoes. I suppose sympathy is, it's like if somebody's down a hole. You know what I mean? Like you can go down and you can sit with them. Like there's no problem. But um, I suppose that's what empathy is, like that you can go down and you can sit with somebody, but you're not trying to fix them. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas sympathy then is just kind of feeling sorry for someone like, oh, these poor people, or that's absolutely awful, God love them. You know, that kind of, I suppose, almost a bit patronizing is sympathy. Whereas mm-hmm. empathy is just putting yourself in somebody else's shoes and understanding that things you know, how di- how difficult or how tough they might be for that person or how hard it might be for you if you were in that situation, but not feeling sorry for them because that doesn't help somebody to change. So it's, uh, again, an element of curiosity, you know, what is this person going through? How would I feel like if I was in their situation? I suppose it also makes you think about, well, it's not, you know, they give it give it some context, you know, what they're going through. Um, and then the final part, reflective listening. Could you explain what that is? Yeah, so it's really like active listening. You'd be amazed. Uh, you probably know this from your own um, training in terms of the psychotherapy side of things, but you'd be amazed how much of our lives we don't listen, you know? Um, I brought, my husband would probably laugh at that because he, I think he, he, he has selective hearing, which I think is a little bit different. Um, but I think active listening is so hugely important. Like so many times we can be so distracted with our lives or we can have so many of our own agendas when we're talking to friends or family. We might be uncomfortable with what they're talking about. So we want to fix them or we want to make it better. But what happens within that is we're not actually hearing what they're saying. We're just hearing so that we can answer so that they can move on and we don't have to sit with the pain with them anymore. Whereas I suppose as therapists, it's different. You're sitting with the person and you're actively listening. You're not trying to fix them. You're not trying to make them better. You're just giving them a space to express themselves and you're reflecting back to them what it is that they're saying to you. And maybe for the first time in their lives or in the situation that they're in, they're hearing their own story objectively, which again can be huge for them because most of our lives are stories and you know the situations and difficulties we're going through most of our lives they just run through our head unconsciously you know all the thoughts all the language everything surrounding a situation and sometimes it's like journaling when you write it down or you speak it out to somebody else and they reflect it back to you you can go wow you know that wasn't as straightforward or that wasn't as easy as I thought that actually had a bit more of an impact on me. Or if that was somebody else, if I was in somebody else's shoes in that situation. Yeah. Like I'm actually coping quite well, all things considered. Does that kind of make sense? No, that, that makes a lot of sense. And there's a few points that come up there that I think about one is I wonder if we've got like an, an innate desire or innate drive to be listened to. And you know, if that is lacking in our life so much that there's something, um, that can seem so nourishing about that, having someone that listens to us. 
Uh, and the other thing I was thinking about was when it comes to, you know, just being able to open up and talk about things, uh, it can be so much more helpful than just having thoughts in your head, which I think is probably uh, unanimous across therapies, whether it's CBT, which I practice kind of most routinely, or counselling. When we can articulate our thoughts, it kind of uh, can put the pieces together, put the jigsaw together, and it's a much better way of understanding it. And I think then that writing is an even better way of understanding it, because I guess you have to formulate those thoughts, that ideas, and it becomes a bit more objective when it's kind of on the paper, maybe similar to, to journaling. Yeah, absolutely. And like, if people could see me, like I'm nodding my head here as you're speaking. <laughs> but absolutely, like um, that that's the huge part of it is it just it runs around on reams in our heads. And we get ourselves, you know, we get ourselves tied in knots trying to figure everything out. Um, but as you said, just putting it down on paper or having somebody just to chat it out with. Like I know even myself, um, you know, when I'm having a rough day at work or, you know, if there's loads going on at home um, or there's different things happening, it's just so nice to have a space where you can go in and you can just get everything off your chest. It's reflected back to you and it seems so different then. It just gives a completely different perspective on it. So that kind of active listening, letting someone know that you've um, that they're heard cues from your body language and kind of summarizing it back so that you become a bit of a sounding board. Absolutely. And even if we look kind of at research at the moment, even in terms of little children, you know, and I suppose a lot of us get to this point in our adult lives where maybe sometimes our needs haven't been met as children in terms of our own emotional development, you know, our own, I suppose, development of our emotional intelligence and so on. And I like I see with my little daughter, she's three. Um, and I suppose a lot of the books that I've been looking at over the last while would be um, uh, who... Uh, the Whole Brain Child is one of them. Um, uh, there's a couple of those different ones. There's kind of like a series of them, but I've been looking at them. And it's this it's this stuff fundamentally. You know, so she comes in and she's having a tantrum or whatever. Like you go to her, you sit with her, you regulate her. Then once she's regulated, then the learning can happen. But we can't, it's very difficult for us to develop, move on and keep learning if we're constantly dysregulated. And if we haven't had or don't have that space to regulate ourselves, it's very, very difficult then for us in daily life. Mm, the Whole Brain Child is a brilliant read and I'd really recommend it for, I think, people with children or adults who might find it difficult to self-regulate because it might help them understand Absolutely. Because it's very much similar, um, there's a lot of overlaps with that. And even things like DBT, which would be a type of therapy that is used for, you know, people who might find it difficult to uh, regulate. And um, yeah, I've tried it with my own three-year-old and sometimes it works. Um, but I'm, I'm hoping they bring out maybe an updated edition. <laughs> because uh, How to yeah. do it. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I think it kind of comes back to that stuff, you know, that... Like if we get that space and that time at that age, that early primitive age, that, you know, unconditional positive regard that we understand, I suppose, or that we feel fundamentally as humans, we're born good, we're innately good um, and that we try our best. And yes, we make mistakes, but we generally try our best and we don't mean to hurt people or upset people or whatever. And I suppose if we meet our children with that, we meet ourselves with that kind of compassion piece, um, definitely then I think it's easier for us to regulate ourselves. Just thinking back on uh, you mentioned earlier, uh, Donna, you know, that you've been in practice for 10 years. So, you know, you'd have been very young, probably as young as you could be, you know, in your early 20s to be uh, 
an accredited counsellor is that the right term yeah so i suppose like for me i i did my even search extremely young like you know i don't know if you can slip through the cracks like this anymore in ireland but i was about 16 when i did my leave insert so i didn't do transition year i don't know if, if um i i don't know like a lot of people do it but i just wanted to kind of get out of the school system but um i i went off to study psychology for a year in dublin and sure like i was a 16 year old girl from rural ireland living in dublin city and i was home within about six weeks with my tail between my legs um, and then I kind of said to myself okay what do I really want to do here um, and I, I, I always knew look I wanted to be a counsellor it was what I wanted to do so I was 18 and I went back so by the time I had my degree um, I was 21 so I had my degree at 21 and then I had my honours degree at 22 and I had my full accreditation by the time I finished my honours degree so I was kind of fully accredited um, and qualified at 21. So it, it is quite young, but I suppose mm. this is kind of part of who I am really at this stage. I don't know, you know, it's part of my identity doing this day for so long because I've just grown up with it. It's been, it's just been such a huge part of my life. Um, like obviously I met people over the years that have said, oh, you're too young or, you know, how could you have a clue what you're doing at that age? But I suppose what I've seen over the years, particularly in a lot of the disadvantaged communities that I've worked in and work with and um, that like you will meet people and they have gone through things at 16 or 17 or 18 years of age that adults in their 40s and 50s couldn't ever even contemplate going through so I think we have to have a little bit of respect for that as well um, you know and to understand that like not everyone experiences life from our perspective like i can see how that it can be yeah quite useful to have that youth on your side to be have the finger on the pulse of the youth of the nation because i guess sometimes as i get a bit older sometimes i make like father ted, ted jokes and <laughs> if it's a younger uh, patient it might look at me like i don't know what you're talking about so sometimes i'm feeling i'm uh, losing a bit of touch um, so I can definitely see the utility of being younger, and as well, if you want to stick to the, you know, the, to stick to the core components. Well, if they're mm -hmm. considered the most important bits, I definitely think it's helpful to have the experience that comes with life. Um, mm -hmm. but if the core components are what are meant to work, then you know maybe, uh, it's it shouldn't make too much of a difference. Absolutely, and I suppose really everyone's kind of different as well, you know. But I think some I, I suppose my experience and having worked with counsellors worked with psychotherapists worked with all these different people in all different areas over the years is I think you kind of in this profession or these professions you kind of either have it or you don't like you mm. can either connect with people or you can't and I think that's irrespective of what age you are you know as you said if those core components are there and they're you know and they're solid um, and you're able to go in and sit with somebody and sit with uncomfortable feelings and all of that sort of stuff I think then you're definitely at least more than halfway there. Mm. And those core components, I wonder how much um, they are, have informed other types of therapy. Because I imagine, you know, we almost take them for granted at the moment, but there probably was a time where they weren't considered a necessary part of therapy, whereas now they're, they're taught on probably every form of psychotherapy their, their first semester. Do you, know, do you know how counseling may have informed other types of therapy? Yeah, and I suppose it most recently then, like again, because it, it, as I said at the start, like going way back, like you're going into, what was it, like the, the early 20th century when Freud was around, you know, like that's a long, long time ago. But I suppose more recently, like a lot of the work by Nick, 
Cooper. I'm sure you've probably heard of Mick Cooper. Um, no, but he, uh, okay, yeah. I suppose in counseling research, he would have pulled a lot of um, the different research and put it into a book called Essential Research Findings. Now, I would have done a, I would have taken a lot from that in my studies. That's almost 10 years ago. So he might obviously have newer editions, but really he was looking at the work of Assay and Lambert. Um, and Assay and Lambert really look at the concept of the therapeutic relationship. So um, they have this concept called Lambert's pie, and it's broken then into four different components in terms of the common factors which make therapy effective, um, irrespective of the discipline that you're working in. So um, really the therapeutic relationship is a huge piece and a huge component. Then obviously extra therapeutic factors such as like what's going on in the client's life. Like we can't take responsibility for every single person that comes through the door. Like, you know, whether I'm a counselor or a psychotherapist or a psychologist, we can only do the work with what's in front of us, but that the, the, the therapeutic relationship is absolutely huge within that work. And that's across the board in all different psychotherapy disciplines. No, I remember doing a, an essay on the same topic uh, when I was doing my CBT uh, training. Yeah, the emphasis is uh, placed on that seems to be the common factor that leads to the best results. If we were to think about what kind of problems people might seek to uh, access counselling for, yeah, what kind of problems is, might it be particularly helpful for, in your own opinion? Um, I think really, like when we're looking purely at counselling on its own, like so to, 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 to put that in a box, and look at it and say, okay, so counselling fundamentally, if I had no other theory background or anything, if I was just meeting somebody where they're at, listening to them, reflecting to them and giving them unconditional positive regard, and I had no other training, no other psychotherapy, no other anything, what would that be useful for? And I think that, I suppose for me, when clients come in, clients that are just struggling and confused, right? That's a simple way of putting it. Um, I think it helps people to clear out and define what am I struggling with? What am I confused about? What am I finding hard? So the counselling skills a lot of the time will be in the first couple of sessions that we would have with clients because for a lot of people, they just know they're not happy or they just know they're sad or they just know that they're angry all the time. And the other stuff, they need time, they need space to, to process that and to work through it. And I think that's where the counselling skills come in the best, is that initial connection with the client, getting to know them, getting to know what they're about. And from that couple of sessions, generally those people would take the most from the counselling skills side of it. And even after a couple of sessions, they might just have brought into their own awareness what is actually going on for them. And for some people, that actually might be enough. And then they go and they take action themselves. But up to that point, they might have actually known what was going on for themselves or why they were feeling the way that they were feeling. They just knew that they needed to talk to somebody and try and get what was in their head out, if that makes sense. No, that makes a lot of sense. And it, it, it reminds me of when I used to work in a CBT-specific service in the UK. Um, you know, in the UK, I've mentioned previous podcasts, but there's a service called IAPT, uh, Improving Access to Psychological or Increasing Access to Psychological Therapies. Um, and it's about, you know, people having access to primary care um, psychotherapy. 
uh, and uh, it's, it's amazing it's a really good service but it's all it's nearly all cbt and a lot of people come through they don't really know what they want they're just happy to have something and you know it's not for everyone because it's change based it's goal orientated and a lot of people might think i don't really know i just kind of need to talk about things and if that was the case on occasion i was lucky to work in some services did offer counseling you might say okay well maybe counseling might be more effective to give you that space to air your thoughts um, and then maybe some specific things come up you might want to cite, cite, try CBT down the line or maybe that is enough yeah absolutely mm, so it sounds like I was doing the right thing by advising them counseling at the time because that was my kind of that was my take on it but I was never a hundred percent sure yeah that's what we would find here definitely like and I suppose that's the difference between like you know being in one particular discipline and then maybe, you know, doing further training or postgraduate training in like psychotherapy or whatever. It's not the same. That's what we found is it's not the same as coming through, you know, with say, a four year psychology degree or a four year counseling and psychotherapy degree. Because, you know, you have a lot of the times you have that foundation. You have those core skills. You've been developing them. You've been working on them for maybe four or five years by the time you do a master's. Do you know, so that's kind of, that's where we're coming from. Whereas I suppose with the CBT, what happens sometimes is people try to do it onto people. So you, so somebody comes in and it's like, right, okay, we're going to do CBT onto you now, and then you're going to be fixed and it's all going to be lovely. And you know, what we've seen over the years is for a lot of people that aren't ready, it's very easy for us to say, okay, I'm a therapist and that person's not ready for CBT and you know, good luck and thanks or whatever, they'll be back when they're ready. But for some people, as you said, if you take a trauma-informed approach, maybe there's too much going on for them there to process the whole CBT stuff. Maybe they just need to be met where they're at. And a lot of times we can just do that by being human, you know, by having the unconditional positive regard, the reflective listening, and the, what was the third one? The empathy. And then the other stuff will come in. Then when they're ready, then when they're able, then when they're capable, the other stuff will come in. Um, and it's about working around that rather than, again, going in, trying to project stuff and do stuff onto people. Um, because that then, I suppose, disempowers them. That's the way we would see it, is it disempowers the person and it makes them kind of reliant on the process. Whereas we are, when we use skills with clients, we're continuously trying to make them their own therapist. So that long term, the work that we do, it actually sticks with them and stays with them. And they might go away after working with us, you know, for X amount of sessions or X amount of months. Um, and they might come back down the line. But if they come back down the line, it might be only for maybe two or three sessions or something like that. Yeah, and I guess that's a yeah, core component of the CBT approach, at least, is, you know, helping yeah. somebody become their own therapist. Yeah. Um, you know, and just kind of talking about necessity to be able to talk about things, you know, it makes sense because... Well, you'd expect uh, humans to have this capability because before psychotherapy was formalized, which has only been the case for, I guess, hundreds or so years, you know, people still experience problems and they would have had to have some way of coping. So that you imagine that talking, being listened to would have been the vessel to work through those issues in the past. If we were to think about uh, some of the strengths of counseling, Donna, you know, how would you kind of back it up? What would you kind of say are some of its um, that may differ from it or that make it kind of unique or special or that make it particularly uh, strong? Um, I suppose for me, like a lot of the work over the years that we've done here um, as well is suicide prevention. I think it's hugely, hugely helpful in terms of suicide prevention and postvention. Um, you know, particularly around grief, like a lot of times when we're going through grief, like we just have to sit with it, like it's horrible and it's awful. 
um, and life can be horrible and awful and then it can be wonderful and lovely other times. Um, but I suppose counselling offers people that space to be able to sit with it. Like we can educate, we can give psychoeducation and explain to people, you know, what bereavement is, what grief is, what's kind of considered kind of normal and not normal and that sort of stuff. But I think just the ability to sit through it with somebody and particularly as well for people, you know, if, if somebody is um, after losing maybe a family member or a friend or a colleague or somebody close to them through suicide, um, I think as well, like we found that, that that the counselling side of things can be really helpful for the person to try to work through and process what's happened. Um, like CBT and negative thinking, that sort of stuff. You know, there's nothing wrong with it per se, but it's more the kind of counselling skills stuff that can be helpful in those situations. Um, and it also as well for people that are suicidal. Um, for a lot of people that are suicidal, even just listening to their perspective and trying to see life from their world and where they're at, um, that that can be quite helpful as well. Obviously, you know, you would use the skills and tools around the likes of the assist training course, you know, and using ambivalence to talk about, you know, the want to stay and the want to go, that sort of stuff. But I suppose really it's, it's the counselling skills we found that people just feel that they are connected to somebody. And if you look again across the board at research, fundamentally as humans, what we all seek is connection. And for a lot of people that are very, very lonely, very, very isolated um, and struggling very much with their mental health, they may not have that connection. And sometimes it's reinforced um, and it's, I suppose, uh, like reiterated by be a, being able to be in a room with a therapist, they may have nobody else in their life that they're able to connect with. And being able to, I suppose, mirror that out within the therapy setting can be huge for people to move forward and to, and develop and move out of the difficulties that they're in. Just, I guess that really sets it apart from so many other therapies where it's not really say that you're trying to fix someone, but you are trying to give them tools to, to manage something as opposed to just giving them that space to to talk about things, understand them, uh, get things off their chest, which, yeah, sounds like uh, it can be so important, especially for things like suicide, which, you know, Ireland, uh, although I think the suicide rates have decreased over the past kind of 15 years or so, but, you know, it still seems to be, it's still a problem. And even though it was quite, yesterday I was walking back over a bridge in Cork and I seen that there was like a teddy bear tied onto the bridge. And I'd never seen it before, but I'd heard about him and it was like, uh, had a number of Samaritans about it and said that you were loved. And it's quite jarring to see that you know, people are going to that measures because these things, you know, are affecting people. Absolutely. And it's, yeah, it's not just Cork, it's not just Tipperary, like it's across the board. Um, and I think with the past year that everybody has had, like obviously, you know, suicide statistics and figures and all of that sort of stuff, they obviously have to go through the whole process of coroner's court. They have to be defined as suicide. They have to have evidence to prove it, to, you know, give all of that stuff in order to release the statistics so like we won't see this year's figures or you know the past 12 months figures for at least another couple of months so we don't really know what impact the pandemic has had on people's mental health or our suicide rates just yet but I do think that there is a huge space for people over the next while to try for us to try and get them to reach out and and be able to, to give that support to people right now because it's been really difficult and sometimes just sitting down 
with somebody um, and processing that out with them and accepting and acknowledging the struggles that they've had over the past year can actually build their resilience you know like because what we're seeing all the time now is this positivity movement and i like don't get me wrong i think it's really important to be positive but i think we've got this toxic positivity that's out there and it's bandied around and everybody's told to just be positive and see the positives and everything but what you're doing with that is you're disregarding people's traumas you know, you're not actually acknowledging how difficult and how hard things have been for some people. Um, that even difficulties, there are obviously, we can still take positives from them, but we can't heal from things if we're too busy denying that they're happening. Mm, no, it's, yeah, it's definitely, it's almost a strange thing to see. Like uh, positive vibes only is something I see come up every now and again. And, uh, <laughs> Oh, mm. I tried to be mad. But yeah, so that's... But as you say about yeah. the pandemic, yeah, it's, uh, I think it's a no-brainer that people, everyone's mental health will be in such a poor place as a result. But, you know, hopefully, um, hopefully, you know, that we're turning a corner at that now and people will start to get back on track with their lives. I, I just kind of wonder if, uh, what, you know, its strength can also it's be its weakness sometimes, uh, Donna, maybe in your own experience, you know, where people do want to have a fix. I'm not even sure if it's necessarily a weakness of of counseling because it doesn't uh, allude to be you know anything but the, as you've explained it and mm. um, but could that be I guess for people thinking about counseling would that be something to consider okay well it, maybe it's not for you if you don't want to kind of sit there and talk or mm. it's not something you're open to doing at least so I suppose really some of the downsides of it um, that I've seen over the years would be for some people that come in with counseling they can get a little bit stuck Right. Um, and I suppose a lot of therapists out there would probably agree with me on this one. But that for some people, when you're taking a purist counselling approach, some people tend to get stuck. Like so a lot of services um, would provide counselling services. But then what, what, what has happened is clients are coming in and they come in continuously. And it's almost like a, a weekly ritual for them to come in and they do their counselling session. And it can almost become like a chat, like a conversation with no direction. And, you know, then for that person, they just keep repeating the same story. They keep repeating the same stuff and they, they tend to get that, that little bit stuck within their own narrative. Um, that's what we've kind of seen over the years. So I suppose using the counselling space, but through supervision, you know, and all the external pieces that we do as therapists to identify if somebody is a little bit stuck and then find ways you know, to, to move them on from that, because otherwise it just becomes every week a chat and the person, they may be getting something from it from a human level, but in terms of a development and, you know, the, the piece around that, the, the, do you just inevitably counsel somebody every single week for an hour mm. for the rest of their lives? Or does there come a point where the person needs to take a little bit of personal responsibility um, and, and, you know, work through some goals um, or at least have an understanding or justification to why they're there. Does that mm, yeah, make no, sense? Yeah, absolutely. That, um, you feel that there should be some level of direction to it, whether they're formulating their thoughts more so, making um, changes in their life as a result, uh, understanding themselves better, or as if it just feels like it's stagnating or coasting, maybe, you know, this could be part of the problem. And for some, they'll be, you know, for some people, the reason will be because they'll be immersed in trauma. 
you know, there's there's no question of that. Like, um, they may come in, there may be domestic violence. They may not psychologically be in a place to do the work and they need the holding space. But I suppose as a therapist, it's about asking yourself the question all the time, like, is this helping my client and in what way? Um, because that's really, really important. Or you might just feel like you're continuously going around circles um, and the person needs to be able to take a little bit of personal responsibility, make a few changes. Um, but again, like acknowledging obviously the trauma informed approach um, and some people, some therapists might be really, really happy to sit in that and meet the same client for a year. And, you know, but I suppose for us, it's it, I suppose, yeah, for us, it's more so about what the person is getting from it. Um, you know, and understanding that if the person is putting this space aside and this time aside, that we're able to to at least move them a little bit forward. Mm, I guess the, the the ethics may be questionable if they're coming back and it, you know it's not really helping them. But I think yeah, having that trauma informed yeah. approach can maybe think, oh, maybe talking about this isn't enough. Maybe they need more, and maybe it's a point where either you do a different type of therapy with them or point them in the direction of someone who may be better equipped to deal with what you have an inkling about what could be happening. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, that's all we've time for today, Donna. It's been a real treat talking with you. I hope our listeners now have a much better understanding of counselling as I certainly do. Um, so I really appreciate the time and your expertise that you've offered today. Thanks so much. Now, I don't think my expertise shone through at the start. <laughs> <laughs> I think I was like a deer in headlights. But look, we got there in the end. And look, I just hope people take something from it. Like one thing I just wanted to come in on at the end that I had taken a note of to say, I suppose for me, counselling is like the old Ireland. Um, and in some ways, I suppose because of where I live and where I'm from, I'm kind of still in it. But in old Ireland, rurally there was always one local house there was always one place where people would pass and they could drop in and there was always someone there to have a chat always someone there to listen um and always a listening ear and i suppose because life and society and everything has moved on and has changed so so much i think a lot of our communities have lost that and I suppose bringing that piece back to the community is having counselling services available in local communities. That's how I would explain it. So I hope it's OK for me to just to leave it on that note. No, I, I agree. Yeah, Donna, I think, um, yeah, I think we're lucky in Ireland traditionally that we've had very strong communities. And part of that means that you've got some of the talk to and people that you feel connected with. And it's one of the most important factors for all sorts of health, mental health, physical health mortality rates, I mean, cancer rates, um, the yeah. importance of having social connections. And, you know, for some people, it's very hard to do that, particularly with displacement, you know, people moving to cities, moving to different areas, and counselling can offer that to some degree, at least. Absolutely. And thank you so much for your time. Mm, no, uh, it's been um, all my pleasure, Donna. So uh, I'm sure I'll speak to you soon. And uh, thanks again. Thank you.